You are now listening to Monument Lab FM, where we discuss the future of monuments and the state of public memory in America and across the globe, amplifying the voices of an emergent movement through the arts, activism, and advocacy. You can support our work at monumentlab.com or follow us on socials at monument underscore lab. Subscribe to this podcast anywhere you listen. For this special episode, we take a trip to the Brooklyn Museum with Future Memory co-host Paul Farber, where he moderated a program for the popular discussion series, Brooklyn Talks. How can we memorialize and visualize the extraordinary loss of life caused by COVID-19? Paul explores this question in a dynamic exchange between Sekou Cook and Raphael Lozano Hemmer, two powerful practitioners working in separate but intersecting fields. Sekou Cook is an architect, researcher, and founding member of the Black Reconstruction Collective. Raphael Lozano Hemmer is a media artist working at the crossroads of architecture and performance art. Monument Lab, Future Memory, was happy to be a part of the documentation of Raphael Lozano Hemmer, A Crack in the Hourglass, an ongoing COVID-19 memorial, an anti-monument installation previously on view at the Brooklyn Museum, and the inspiration for this talk. Lozano Hemmer's project demonstrates the power and possibilities of reimagining the existence of monuments in physical and digital space. On this night at the museum in May, marking a somber milestone of one million COVID deaths in the United States, Farber, Cook, and Lozano Hemmer discuss the role public art plays in remembrance, collective mourning, and healing communities. Let's listen. I'm gonna first say thank you to Sekou, to Raphael, for sharing such powerful work, poignant work, And even through the intensity and the loss, finding places and opportunities to gather, to assemble, and to reimagine. Um, And thank you to everyone being here, um, the staff at the museum, security, and of course our um, interpreters here. It's no small feat that we can actually be here together. And when I say we, I say we also acknowledging those are not with us. We're now two plus years into the pandemic. And before we talk about your projects and monuments and memorials, I wanted to just ask you both how you think you've changed over the last two years. I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask that (laughs) because I don't really have that kind of perspective on myself, maybe. I think that my career has changed quite drastically over the last two years. I think some of that might be that, you know, I've just been working hard enough to get to a level and things start to fall in line. But I think a lot of it has to do with the Black Lives Matter uprising. People started to look at uh, the work of, of black architects and practitioners more carefully. And those of us who had been doing a kind of culturally based work for a while um, got a lot of attention around that. But it's also not something that's just a coincidence or a right place, a right time. It's doing the work first and then having it recognized. Um, I've also 
changed cities, so I'm in a new location, I'm no longer in the Northeast, I'm in the South. Um, so that brings about a lot of changes, and my life in many ways looks, looks very different. Um, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint parts of that that are directly attributable to the lockdowns and the situations and, and our new lifestyles. But I think it's like having something happen and you think, well, I'm not sure exactly if that is, is really um, causing anything in your life. But then six months later, everything changes. Like, I'm not sure if it's that one thing, but everything is different. So you don't know what are the things that cause changes in your life. But yeah, everything is completely different. And, and for me, that's good, not just because all these changes are positive, but change itself is the only constant in the universe. So I, I'm just really <laughs> happy for any kind of change. So I, I got COVID very early in March of, of, of 2020 here in New York. And um, it was quite humbling because I have asthma and I was sick for a long time. And then I did it all. I, I started doing yoga and meditation. I stopped taking caffeine. I got divorced. I found love again. So I'm trying to come back with a little bit less of an edge, working only 80% of the time. I'm failing, but I'm trying to, to be a little bit more thoughtful about uh, the fragility of, of life. And intellectually, I think what COVID does bring to all of us is the idea that the atmosphere cannot be taken for granted, that it wants to kill us. And I think that that's a really important lesson that relates, for example, to you know environmental cataclysm that we're undergoing. So I think when I'm optimistic, I think that things like you know flattening the curve is something that we've now all learned, and that we will now think and apply that to um, environmental catastrophe. But you know that's again when I'm optimistic, and it's rare. How do you? measure the passing of time in your work? Yeah, time is a really important important piece and aspect, especially when we look at across both of our work. So this idea and this concept about monuments and how we approach them is really, really important when we start to think about time, because time changes many things, especially our attitudes towards different people, right? Like some of the most loved people in the mid 80s, you couldn't tell me that Bill Cosby wasn't the best person on the planet, but our perception of that really changes quite, quite drastically just with the revelation of new information, but also our shift in perspective or shift in values, the way that we grow and evolve as, as people individually and collectively. Then architecturally speaking, I was talking about this the other day, that we have a sense of wanting to project architecture as something that's completely permanent. And that's a really Western idea. It comes from the Enlightenment. We want to show our dominance and our permanence and our presence, and we're going to erect these, these monuments and these buildings that they're banks or they're state buildings, but they're built like temples of the Romans and the, and the Greeks. And, and it's because this is the, the closest thing we knew to something that was permanent, like a structure that was permanent. But the reality is that buildings are not permanent. There's no part of them that are permanent. If they're built well, they last for a really long time. But they are completely transitory. And I like to think of them as living, breathing organisms. Like they literally 
are, are birthed and they grow and they breathe, they have respiratory systems, they have blood and nerves that run through their systems and they open and close and then they die, they crumble. So I'm constantly thinking about impermanence in all of my work, all the time, especially when I reflect on hip hop and how hip hop constantly changes and reinvents itself and evolves. Those are the aspects that I'm trying to capture in my work on a regular basis. I completely identify with what you said. I think it's true. And I think further, this desire for permanence is also a certain kind of empiric necrophilia that is something that we need to work against very much. The insistence on the ephemeral, the insistence on the performative, the insistence of thinking of, for example, a memorial as a radio station. I think that's interesting because it helps you think of it as something that can come to an end, that should come to an end when people are no longer engaging with it. So I think that understanding time, different people can do it different ways. The only thing I think we seem to be against is this idea of universal permanence or exhaustive representation or any of this kind of very, you know, ideas that are, that are supposed to be solid and unquestionable. The monument needs to be an ongoing question. In the work that you've shared, um, Rafael, you spoke about the monument in many ways as needing to change over time, disappear, add layers to a story. And Sekou, when prompted about building or imagining a COVID memorial, um, you said you wanted a memorial to memorials. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you a few questions about this, but I want to um, go back and ask, what is your first or an early memory of an interaction with a monument or memorial broadly defined or as you wish to define it? I remember being a child visiting New York. So I grew up in Jamaica, but my my mother has family in New York and New Jersey, so we would come up every single summer since I was nine months old. And so New York has always been a second home for me. Um, and I remember going to the top of the World Trade Center and looking through those little telescope things that they have to, to the viewfinders that, that so you can see the rest of the city and just thinking about the scale and the size of that building. And by that time, I probably already knew that I wanted to be an architect, but feeling that a building could bring me to that place on top of the world, on top of the known universe for me at the time, it was incredibly powerful. And then 16, 17, 18 years later, living in Brooklyn and then waking up on a beautiful September morning and looking through my window across the way and seeing those same towers on fire um, and then um, eventually coming down just solidified for me a lot of the impermanence that, that I'm talking about right now. Like um, that, that something that was important for me to see and experience really early on in my life and, and shaped a kind of path for my career already did its job, I guess, for me. Then I remember being deeply affected, living in the city at the time, and as we all were, and just as traumatized as any other New Yorker was um, in the days that followed. But um, 
also recognizing that there was a mourning of the building <laughs> that I was experiencing um, that I wasn't talking about very, you know, to anybody because, you know, people are thinking about the loss of life and war and all that. But I was really still mourning that building inside. So it's it's understandable when someone feels a certain connection to a monument to Columbus or to General Lee or whoever, regardless of what we think, we, we un, it's understandable to me that they would feel a kind of trauma when those things are torn down, regardless of how people think about where their their place in society, right? That that gave me time to think about my answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I would say the first memory was of the Angel of Independence in Mexico City. It's supposed to be about the independence from colonial power, and yet it's Germanic or French looking, almost like Victoria Samotracia, uh, angelic figure. But maybe a more interesting story is the one where I, I went to see close to Budapest the place where they had taken all of the Marxist and communist monuments and have put them into a park. And I remember that as something that I, I thought was important because I, I look at what's happening, the debate here in the United States over, say, southern generals and so on. I really think, and I have no, no, no uh, how do you say in English, uh, I don't have a seat at the table, so I, it's just my opinion that they need to be kept into a location where they can be reinterpreted like that. It's really fascinating to see the archetypes and the topologies mm. and the themes that arise when you put them all together like yeah. that, like some kind of zoo yeah. for those <laughs> would be an interesting thing to do with those yeah. monuments, yeah, like they did in Hungary. In mid-review, I saw a, a work that a student was doing on her thesis at Harvard earlier this semester, and and she was looking at the, the spolia of all those monuments, like the pieces, um, and using it uh, and thinking about them being embedded as a kind of foundation of some other thing that was being built on top of it so that you would be able to go down into the grotto and see these, these pieces that may have had significance at one point but, but lost their significance over time. Um, but it's similar. It's it's like the you know the the end of the Planet of the Apes, where you just see that that the, the torch. Then you have some kind of connection with what it is, but it's not in its in its full glory. And then the whole meaning kind of changes, right? Raphael, you you shared a bit this of this in your presentation about kind of what led you to a crack in the hourglass. What has been the experience? since coming out of quarantine and having it here at the Brooklyn Museum when you um, may not have interacted with everyone who participates, but you've had some engagement. What has it been like to be present in that space and with people? Yeah, when, when we did the project, uh, I was mentioning how important it was to try and do some kind of ritual, uh, even if it was telematically. Uh, another aspect of the project was to just render visible, right? Um, the, the numbers are so abstract. We're not equipped to deal with, well, a million people died. It's like, we don't, we don't understand that, right? If I tell you 80,000 children die each day of curable diseases, we hear that and go, yeah, well, that sounds really not good. And then you move on, right? I think that one of the challenges or one of the good things of, 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 of art that tries to materialize those numbers is, 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 is that scale, you know, is being able to, to, to put a face behind those numbers. We tried to do that. And an interesting sort of development is when we first this, did this project, it was mostly in Mexico. It could not be exhibited at Mock Museum because Mock was completely closed 
for a year and a half, Moac was not open. And then when we finally got invited to present it here at the Brooklyn Museum, a couple of things were amazing. One of them is that the museum put together a team of people who would reach out to different communities. So for example, it was fascinating for me to learn that disproportionately this pandemic hit, you know, uh, communities of color, for example. In Mexico, my, my talk was about this is affecting everybody and we have this kind of sense of solidarity. And then fast forward to the United States, the, 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 the statistics don't don't prove that. So for me, it was a, a learning experience to learn that. Um, ultimately, one of the interesting questions about this kind of ephemeral project is what, what happens to it after? And it's not something that I have really thought out yet. On June 25th, it will no longer be at the Brooklyn Museum, but clearly we'll keep the website running. We'll find a location where we can have the machine so that people, sometimes mourning takes decades, you know, it's not like we're done. And also, I was also interested in how, um, even though it's a lot, it's almost a thousand portraits that we have, people are, you know, they're, a lot of us are in denial over what happened. We all want to just move on. I mean, everybody is sick and tired of it, right? Like you don't want to think about it. But if you don't think about it, if you don't mourn it, if you don't have closure, then you're going to carry it as an interior trauma the rest of your time. And that's the difference between grief and mourning. Grief you carry with you all the time, but mourning helps you, you know, sort of share it. You know, it helps you externalize it and, and hopefully unblock it. So that's where we're at now. I mean, we're thinking about what happens to this project after. I wonder if we could take all of the events of the last couple of years, all of the traumas, all of the deaths, all of the setbacks, all of the business losses, all of the uh, repression and the angers and the, the conflicts, and just print all of that on one bed and then tip it over and just be done with all yeah, of it. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Like, make it evaporate. Yeah, that'd be perfect. There's this process of catharsis that we see in the work, um, or even for both of you, you, you know, the way to deal with monumental structure, monumental loss, is in some ways to go back to intimate scale. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, we're, we're in the midst of a, a profound and long-standing crisis of grief mm -hmm. and of harm in this country and outside of this country. And it's living day to day. It's in our infrastructure. Um, it's definitely in our, our symbols and our systems. And we're talking about acknowledgement and what happens when you acknowledge loss mm -hmm. and what happens when you don't. For, for both of you in the work that you do, have you seen what happens when loss, trauma, grief is acknowledged and what happens alternately when loss, trauma, grief goes unacknowledged? I'm searching the files, but um, I, I don't know if I actually um, deal very much with, with loss or grief in, in my work. Ironically, conversely, I think it deals a lot more with opportunity and joy, right? Um, actual playfulness and happiness, like catharsis through, through joy. Um, and, and I think especially hip-hop as a phenomenon that, that started in this country, in the city, 
um, is something that came out of one of the worst, the worst scenarios of, of our recent history, right? Um, you know, thinking about the South Bronx in the late 60s, early 70s, and Robert Moses and the city being on fire and um, landlords burning their buildings and what Times Square was and the, the, the prostitution and the killings and, and, and the kind of, you know, uh, and the bankruptcy of the city in the mid 70s, like all of that was the backdrop for this really beautiful, playful art form, like expressive art form to come out of. Um, because, and it was, it was started by kids, right? They were high school kids trying to find a place to party <laughs> and trying to find a place, a way to express themselves and realizing that their parents didn't understand them, just like every other generation's parents didn't understand them. So most of my work is grounded there. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if I can answer a question about grief or loss. Um, but the, the point about acknowledgement is, is really, really important to me in just my own personal life about becoming aware and acknowledging any kind of disruption or trauma of any kind, and then it can be let go. I think we are much more um, apt to hold on to things. You know, we can be aware of them and we want to hold on to them and we want everybody else to know about it instead of just being aware of it and, and processing it ourselves, and then we can let it go. Right? In, in preparation for this talk, I read a book by um, a Belgian guy called Guy Coules. It's called Performing Morning, and I want to read you just a couple of things that he mentions. He says the lament, lamentation, you know, it's seeing people mourn allows us to better access our own mourning. So I really like the idea of the, the artist is trying to create an opportunity for people to, to be expressing that. Another quote that I really like in it is about acceptance from Judith Butler. It says that by the loss one undergoes, one will be changed possibly forever. Perhaps mourning has to do with agreeing to undergo a transformation, the result of which we, one cannot know in advance. So there's this idea of we're, we're, we're losing not just the person, we're losing the person we used to be. We have to acknowledge and accept that things will change. And then there's one last one which comes from Sherry Tarkle. Um, it, she was describing a rabbi during a service talking about being in dialogue with the dead, which I really think is, is a very Mexican thing too. Um, the dialogue with the dead, um, the rabbi was suggesting there's four things you need to say to the dead. I'm sorry, thank you, I forgive you, and I love you. And it's so um, important to have that closure. Um, when my own dad died, I'm an atheist, and uh, his family isn't, and they invited the priest, and I thought, you know what, there's beautiful things that priests can say, and I'm sure this time around, you know, it's gonna be fine. But the guy like looked at the room and says, well, I see people who don't normally come to the church and that we only show up here during funerals and I'm going to need, you know, like basically he's asking for money. I couldn't <laughs> smack this guy. But there are, there are some traditions, even in Christianity, that are beautiful to come to terms with that. And uh, as an atheist, I keep looking for them. There's one, which is um, Montaigne. Montaigne said, 
to philosophize is to learn how to die. And I think that art making is something similar. We're all in the process of just coming to terms that this is a finite show. So for atheists, that, that's, that's a good one. The transformation aspect is incredibly important that, that um, the letting go is not dismissal of the thing and erasure. It's actually a way of using that thing to become transformed and reinforcing that element of change that we talked about before. And the other thing that, that struck me about the, the exhibition here, we talk about these, these other traditions that use sand and the, the impermanence of sand and the Dio de los Muertos um, examples, but I'm also thinking about the mandalas in the Buddhist um, tradition, how intricate and beautiful they are and how painstakingly precise they are and how long they take and they're invested in how important this thing is and then it all just gets swept away. Yeah, they let, let it go and it's just this real, really beautiful um, allegory about the impermanence of life, the impermanence of every single physical thing that we experience and then we get a chance to, to treasure that experience more and, and the, the value of that is so much more powerful. So I'm really, really happy that you use the, the, the sand as, as part of the process. Thank you, that's really powerful. And just in that spirit of transformation, in a way, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question that um, was like, men is almost like an underhand pitch um, <laughs> that, that I know you have been asked in the Atlantic, Seku, and you've t taken on yourself, which is what is the status of, um, you know, will there be a COVID memorial, mm -hmm. um, which if our public spaces give us any indication we're having this talk here in the United States of amnesia. Mm -hmm. So we will attempt to push away. Mm -hmm. So instead of asking you that question of what, what will there be a future memorial um, in a large scale way, just in that spirit of drawing catharsis from acknowledging impermanence, mm -hmm. transformation, communion mm -hmm. between the living and the dead, in this moment of heavy grief, what is something as an artist, as an architect, that you would like to see us employ or engage with as a mode of acknowledgement or healing to deal with the weight of loss and the ongoing challenges of grief? Coming back to the idea of a, mem a memorial to memorials, I was really trying to say that, um, that the idea of memorials will, will, would disappear. Right, that we would stop needing to have memorials because um, we've, we've proven their ineffectiveness through what we've seen, the decolonial efforts of, of tearing down these, these old monuments. Um, so uh, I've also been espousing this, this idea that, um, especially in architecture, that um, things that we once thought as a singular thing or that can be enveloped within a singular building, a singular object of building, might actually be more powerful if they get dispersed. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it with offices, let's say. Like, large corporations recognize now that they can employ people all across the globe in their own little micro offices. We can see it with, like, schools, 
um, that are dispersed instead of centralized in a certain location. And we can see it in, in libraries, libraries that can actually go into communities and do different things. So I think for memorials, we can start to think of them as very, very personal things. Just like in, in many Eastern traditions and, and even in South American um, Catholicism, people have personal shrines, personal altars, and they're both altars to people who have passed away, but altars to their teachers, to their gurus. And, and for designers, the opportunity there is to, um, uh, to connect it to, to ideas from some of my other work. It's, it's instead of designing every single thing as a bespoke intervention, you create a framework for people to then um, replicate and adapt and, and personalize themselves. So um, I, I'm, I'm really more interested in ideas of, of how do we performatively dismantle these existing monuments and then make monumentation or memorialization something that's much more individual and personal, and then we can read them and understand them as a collective that's not as done by a singular designer. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of dispersion as a way to, to, to go around it. I mean, when you think about a lot of the rituals that we have, like the, um, do you say in English, procession? Procession. That's incredible, right? Because you're activating community through a walk, right? You're going somewhere, there is an objective, there is a sense of movement. Um, and there is a sense of walking it out. I think that what might be interested, instead of a COVID memorial, which is like a massive oversized syringe or mask, how about a memorial that is like an educational campaign about science and about how in a globalized situation, which we're not going to go back to not being globalized, this is going to happen all the time. And to understand what vaccination is and to understand how to actually stop this, it would be a great memorial. That would be the best service that we can do for all of the dead. A traveling educational campaign, some kind of processional, like a ritual. The loss is major, right? I don't know what the statistics are in comparison to, say, wars, but that's a million people that you just lost here. Mm. That's amazing. And, uh, and we're trying to pretend like nothing happened. So education would be a good memorial. Thank you both. We're coming up toward the close of our time. I'm just really grateful for your, for your questions. We do have time for a couple questions from the audience, um, if you have them. Um, and I think there is a, a microphone for amplification as well. Hi, thank you for these amazing presentations, so inspiring. So I was really interested, Raphael, how you introduced your work in this particular project with these really wonderful memorial artists, Christoph Lodishko and Esther Shalev Gertz and Alfredo Jar, and even this particular work of Doris Salcedo, which are all about absence and loss and showing the wound. And it seems to me that the work that both of you presented here in relation to COVID was very different from that, actually, and that it had to do with healing, with repair, with imagining something else, with bringing people together and creating community. Those works also obviously open a space for people to come and respond to the work in different ways than traditional memorials. But there's something else going on here in your work, and I was wondering if you might be able to speak about the difference, especially I'm interested in 
um, the crack in the hourglass, which we had the occasion to present a satellite uh, version of at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine as part of a project mm -hmm. that I'm leading, the Zip Code Memory Project, which also has to do with creating community and, and, and opening a space for people to come together. And what really struck me watching the machine work and watching the sand has to do with how the sand itself creates community because every one of these photographs is drawn using the same sand. And somehow I begin to wonder sort of what does the sand remember of these different faces and how the machine itself has made a space for creating a more global and communal way to remember not just as an individual project or even a familial one, but really a global one. Thank you so much for, for um, your, your comment and question. And uh, yeah, I should mention, I believe that the piece is still on view at St. John's the Divine, right? And uh, I really appreciate your exhibition. I mean, I did not unfortunately get to see it, but I know that you have made a, a really concerted effort to try and bring other communities in, uh, into it. So, so thank you for that. I should mention the, the examples that I showed is the people who inspired me when I was growing up. And I remember when I first met Bodishko, I told him, you know, your work is site-specific, my work is relationship-specific. And then we fought, and then now we're great friends, and we're collaborating. But I do think that uh, the, 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 the work of the masters, I would say, the, the, the ones that I showed, are all about um, you know, deconstructing master narratives and giving you, you know, new other histories that may have been uh, erased. In my case, and I think yours too, you talk about a framework, I call it a platform. And it's the similar idea, is you set up the conditions for people to then self-represent. And I think that that's what's different from our work than, say, the, the earlier generation. Because in a way, our work is incomplete. It's, it's really just waiting for people to do something with it. And this kind of capability for it to be out of control, to be surprising, is a fundamental part of the potential democratic side of this kind of thing, although that sounds pretentious. But it's an open-ended thing. I think there are a couple of things that are common to that type of, of memorial making, which are you know, one that it's seen as a single authorship, right? That we, I have an idea, I'm gonna execute it, and I have control over what the result is. And, um, and then also, rather than putting, setting up this framework or this platform where people actually get to, to, to do and interpret it in however they, they please. And um, the authors here have very little control over what that is except for the framework and the ideas and the conversations around it. Um, and the second thing is thinking about uh, answering a prompt. Uh, and again, this is why I, I didn't really answer the question about like what does a COVID memorial look like? Because um, it's just like a, a finite thing. Like there's this prompt, this is problem, and I'm going to create a solution. This is my solution to this problem that I've been presented with versus um, my perception right now where I don't really think in terms of problem and solution anymore. I'm really looking for opportunities. Like what is the opportunity here 
this thing is tragic, it's traumatic, people are affected by it, but what's the opportunity? How can we use this as an opportunity to, to create new dialogues, new conversations, new healings, new transformations, to learn from it, grow from it, and, and, and maybe even make something beautiful along the way? On that note, Raphael, Sekou, thank you so much for your powerful work and words tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Sekou Cook, Raphael Lozano-Hemmer, and my co-host Paul Farber for contributing to the ongoing conversation around the future of monuments. Special thanks to the Brooklyn Museum for hosting the evening of Brooklyn Talks we just heard an excerpt from. Stay tuned to Monument Lab FM for more future memories in the making. To learn more about Raphael Lozano Hemmer's work, visit lozano-hemmer.com. That's L-O-Z-A-N-O-H-E-M-M-E-R.com. You can also visit sekukook.com. That's S-E-K-O-U-C-O-O-K-E.com to learn more about Cook's work and practice. Monument Lab Future Memory is produced by Monument Lab Studio, Paul Farber, Lee Sumter, Aubrey Penny, Nico Rodriguez, and Justin Geller. Also with Radio Kismet, and special thanks to Emily Cherish, Christian Cedarlund, and the Christopher Plant. All music for Monument Lab Future Memory, created by Mokita. This season's funding was provided by Stuart Weitzman School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania.